Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we will read verses 3 to 10, but our focus today will be verses 3 to 7. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 3, there the word of Christ says this. For we believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that you would, Lord, teach us and show us, Lord, how the blessedness of any man, Lord, it resides, Lord, exclusively upon our entering into this rest. Lord, to have our sins forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would set this before us today and that, Lord, we would strive to enter into this rest and that there would not be found in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God, but rather that we would fear you and in fear we would be diligent to take care and, Lord, to strive to enter into this rest. So, Lord, teach us today by your word, and we pray, Lord, that you grant to us all things necessary for life and for godliness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this, in a sense, last week uh, by focusing on this concept of rest that has been crucial to the apostles' exhortation to endurance. Right? We did this by examining the three major rests mentioned in the Bible, that being the rest of creation, the rest of Canaan, and the rest that is found in Christ. And we saw that when God enters into rest, or when God announces or proclaims a rest, there is a threefold aspect to this. First, there is a work undertaken by God that is brought to its completion. This is when God enters into his rest. Not because God is tired, but because he has completed his work that displays with perfection his wisdom and power. And for God to enter into that rest simply means that God is satisfied with the work of his hands as it manifests his glory and wisdom and power. The second aspect of this rest is a call by God for men to enter into this rest. Right? Men are called to enter in by faith, resulting in worship and obedience to God. Just as God delights in the work of his hand, so men are called to also delight in God's works to see his glory manifested and to worship and serve the Lord accordingly. The third aspect of this rest is a day set aside by God through divine institution as a token or pledge that men have entered into God's rest. 
right? The principle established at creation is one day in seven, where men are to set aside their common labor, set aside their focus on this present world, and focus instead upon the Lord, meditating upon his works and what God has done. From Adam until Christ, this day was the seventh day. But from Christ until the end of the ages, it is the first day, the Lord's day, the day when Christ was raised from the dead. These are the aspects of God's rest, and all three are seen in God's work of creation, in God's work of delivering Israel from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land, and in God's work of redemption seen in Jesus Christ. Now, of these three rests, the key, right, the most important one, the greatest, is the third. It is the rest we find in Jesus Christ. The other two rests were established to anticipate and to foreshadow the great work of God in redeeming sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate rest that we need to enter. It is the rest found in Christ where we experience the forgiveness of sins. So today we will begin expositing this passage, right? Where these three rests are brought up by way of contrast and comparison, showing that the rest that is before us is not the rest of creation, and it is not the rest of the land of Canaan, but it is the rest of Christ. This is the rest that we must enter into if we will have the eternal blessed life with God. So let's go then to Hebrews 4, and we will pick up in verse 3 today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here, the assurance, right? The comfort for the believer is that we who believe enter into that rest. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into the rest of salvation. Our sins are forgiven and God's wrath against us has been satisfied. As it says in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the refuge for sinners. He is the resting place where we are hidden by God, and it is through him that those who are weary and heavy laden with the guilt of sin, we find rest for our souls in Christ, and we are admitted into this rest by faith in him. But here the question is, How can we know, right? How can we have certainty? How can we have confidence that if we have believed in Christ, that God will indeed be merciful to us? Can we have assurance that we can and have entered into God's rest in Christ simply by believing in him? What if there is more that is required? What if God expects for us to perform some work, to undergo some ritual in order to enter into rest? How can we know for certain that we have entered into rest by faith in Christ? Well, he gives a scriptural proof. He quotes here from Psalm 95. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The proof that we who have believed enter that rest is this passage. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this may seem to be an odd usage, an odd usage of the verse, that the verse provided to grant confidence to believers that we have entered into God's rest is a verse 
addressing the unbelief of the wilderness generation. Yet the apostle is not mishandling the Bible. He's not mangling the text of Scripture, but is rightly applying this verse to the present context. And he is drawing from a principle of interpretation that we must understand when we are reading the Bible. Namely, that any time there is a threat against sin, or any time there is a blessing for obedience declared in the Scriptures, whatever corresponds to that sin or that obedience is implied. Right? If the Bible is making a threat against a sin then it also carries with it a blessing for the virtue that is the opposite of that sin. And any time the Bible promises a blessing for some virtue, for some act of faith or obedience, well then the opposite vice is automatically condemned whenever this virtue is stated. It is implied without needing to be explicitly stated in any given passage. The clearest example of this in the Bible is the Ten Commandments. For the Ten Commandments... Almost all of them are stated in terms of the negative. They're stated in terms of what is prohibited, prohibiting certain sins. But is simply avoiding the sin enough to fulfill the keeping of the Ten Commandments? Are there not also obediences, actions that are implied in the prohibition? Is it enough for us simply not to take the life of our neighbor? Have we kept the Sixth Commandment if we do not murder our neighbor? No, because it also implies that we should do good to our neighbor and that we should love our neighbor. So in that commandment to not murder is also found the expectation to preserve, to love, to do good to our neighbor. This is why in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite were condemned because they failed to practice the sixth commandment. Though they were not the ones who fell among him, and they're not the ones who beat him, but when he was there, left for dead on the side of the road, they had the opportunity to help him. And does the Bible expect them to help them? Yes, based upon what commandment? Based upon the sixth commandment. So though they were not the ones who harmed him, and though they were not the ones who put him in this situation, yet they were still expected under the sixth commandment to render aid and assistance to that man because the sixth commandment expects us to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is true in all of the Ten Commandments. Whatever is prohibited concerning sin at the same time is promoting the corresponding virtue. Another example would be the Tenth Commandment, which says you shall not covet. Well, well, while that commandment says nothing about contentment, what is the opposite of coveting? Is it not to be content? And how is it that you cannot covet without being content? So it is obviously implied there in the prohibition against coveting. And this is how he is using the Bible in our passage. When God swears that they will not enter his rest, and we have to ask, what is the reason that God swore such a punishment to them? What was the basis for God swearing this against them? Well, notice Hebrews chapter 3. Remember what it says in verses 7 to 11. Hebrews 3 verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, 
where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then also verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They refused to believe. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. And as a response to such a wicked heart, God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Well, what is the opposite of an evil, unbelieving heart? It is a believing heart, right? One that believes in the promises of God. And who is he addressing here in this passage in verse 3? He's not talking to pagans. He's not talking to idolaters or to unbelievers. But he addresses them as we who believed. We who have believed. It is the believer that he is addressing. So when God swore in his wrath that they would not enter into his rest because of their unbelief, he is at the same time, he is by implication, swearing that those who do believe will enter into his rest. And that truth is exemplified in the examples of Joshua and Caleb, who themselves were members of the wilderness generation, Yet God did not swear in his wrath against them that they would not enter his rest, but rather God swore that they would enter into his rest. And what was the difference between Joshua and Caleb and the rest of the people? It was their heart and the heart manifesting itself in true faith. They had faith and the others were lacking. Numbers 14. Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 to 24. Numbers 14, verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who have spurned me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Caleb there is addressed in this way. He's pointed out, not that it was only true of him and not true of Joshua, but here Caleb is the focus. He had a different spirit and he followed God fully. So God swore in his wrath that the unbelievers would not enter his rest, but he also is swearing in his grace and mercy that the believer will enter into his rest. So can we have certainty that if we have believed that we will enter into God's rest in Christ and we will enter into the rest of the kingdom of God for all eternity by faith? Can we have confidence? And the answer is, absolutely. Of course we, have, we can, for God has sworn it. And when God takes an oath, God always keeps his word. God has taken an oath that those who believe will enter his rest. And name me one person, one person from the beginning of time until the present day 
who had true faith in Christ. Name one poor sinner who came to Christ for salvation and who was refused, rejected, and turned away. Has it ever happened? It has never happened, and it never will happen. For all who come to him, all who are drawn to him, he will raise them up on the last day because God has sworn that he will surely do it. John 6, 35 to 40. John 6, 35 to 40. John 6, 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The one who believes in Christ will never hunger, they will never thirst, they will have eternal life, he will raise them up on the last day, because God has sworn that he will do so. He has sworn to do something to a man. And when God swears to do something to a man, either for good or for bad, either for his blessing or for his cursing, God always keeps his word. He always fulfills his promises because he cannot and he will not deny himself. Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with uh, them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Here, again, the apostle is giving to them assurance that if we have believed in Christ, he will give to us what he has promised, just as he did with Abraham. God swore to Abraham by an oath, and it was fixed, it was certain, it was unchangeable, and though it seemed that this promise was delayed in its fulfillment, and it seemed that it was impossible in its fulfillment, yet Abraham had great assurance that what God had promised he would do because God swore to him with an oath. And this is what he's done here. When he swears in his wrath, they will not enter his rest. He is at the same time swearing to us that if we have believed, we will enter into God's rest. We have entered into it, he says, through Christ, who is salvation for us, 
through his person and through his work. This is the rest that the prophet David proposed to the people in Psalm 95. This the apostle will now begin to prove at the end of verse 3. He's going to bring forward the other rest of God mentioned in Scripture, enjoyed by God's people in the past, and show that long after these rests were entered into, long after God had finished and accomplished these works, he's still speaking of a future rest, a future work that is coming in a future day, and that this is the rest that the people of God need to enter into. It is the rest that would be accomplished through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 95, which is the passage that he has quoted from and has been the focal point of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, in Psalm 95, the prophet David, this is the rest he is proposing to his congregation, and it is the rest proposed to us in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, at the very end of it, and then verse 4. It says, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. His point here is to show that the rest taught by David in Psalm 95. And again, we remember that Psalm 95, this is the chief text that has been brought forward to exhort us to faithfulness in Christ. When David speaks of entering into God's rest in Psalm 95, he clearly cannot be talking about the rest of creation. Right? For David lived around 900 BC, and the work of creation and the rest of creation took place around 4000 BC, some 3000 years before the writing of Psalm 95. So it is impossible that David is referring to the rest of creation because that has already been accomplished. Right? When he's warning his own congregation about hardening their heart and failing to enter into God's rest, he cannot be talking about what God did at creation. Because God's work of creation was finished from the foundation of the world. From the very beginning, God entered into that rest. And this he proves by quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Genesis 2 Verses 1 to 3, here we have it recorded that when God finished the work of creation, he rested. It was accomplished, it was finished, and there was no more creating being done by God and has not been done since the foundation of the world. Genesis 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their host, but the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. There, from the beginning, from the foundation of the world, there was a work of God, the work of creation, and this work was brought to completion by God, in which it is said that God rested. There is then the call for men to enter into this rest, and there is the day sanctified by God as a pledge or token of this rest. And this rest of creation cannot be the rest that is proposed by the prophet David in Psalm 95, because that rest has already been accomplished. But now he's speaking of a future rest, 
a certain day, a day coming in the future when God will accomplish something even greater than the work of creation. Now, this is important because, again, he's proving these things, but also we have to remember that the readers of the book of Hebrews, the original audience that it was given to, are Jewish Christians who are seeking to return back to the Old Covenant, who want to go back to worshiping God under the rituals that were established by the law of Moses. And yet the apostle is proving from the Old Testament, right, from the prophet David, who himself lived under the Old Covenant worship, who himself knew of the rest of creation, who knew of the rest of Canaan, Yet the prophet David is speaking of another rest for the people of God. A rest that would be ushered in through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the Jews would have to admit, it was very clearly taught in the Old Testament, that under Moses, right, when Israel entered into the rest of Canaan, there were changes instituted by Moses in the way that people worship God. From Adam to Moses, there were true believers, right? There were true worshipers of the Lord. But the way that people worshiped after Moses, in terms of the outward rituals, were different than the way that men worshiped before Moses, right? Under Moses, there was greater specificity. There was greater definition to the worship. There was the high priest from the family of Aaron. There were the priests from the tribe of Levi. There was the tabernacle and later the temple. Before Moses, the tabernacle did not exist. It was instituted by God through the ministry of Moses. So from Adam until Moses, when people worshiped God, they did not go to the tabernacle to do so because the tabernacle had not yet been given in terms of its what it was and, and it had not been built yet according to the plan of God. But from Moses until Christ, if they wanted to worship God properly, where did they have to go? They had to go to the tabernacle or later to the temple. Also, the various sacrifices. Certainly, they were offering sacrifices before Moses, but there are more sacrifices. There is more definition. There is more specificity in the various kinds of sacrifices and offerings that are to be presented by the worshiper under the law of Moses. Also, before Moses, were any of the people celebrating the Passover? What about the Feast of Booths? What about uh, the, the various other feasts and festivals that accompanied the law of Moses? So there were these customs, these rituals that were put into place by Moses, right? Through God by Moses. And the people were to worship God according to these things from Moses until the time of Christ. And many of these things were not known, they were not practiced before Moses. The spiritual component was there, but in terms of the ritual, in terms of the outward, it was not there. So there is a sense in which the worship, in terms of the rituals, under the law of Moses, was different than the worship before the law of Moses. There was a form of outward worship that accompanied the rest of creation, and then there was a form of outward worship that accompanied the rest in the land of Canaan. Now the point being is why would anyone be shocked, surprised, or aghast that when the Messiah comes 
And when he accomplishes his work of redemption, that God would institute new forms of worship that correspond to the work of Christ. And this point is being made by the prophet David in Psalm 95 when he's speaking of the rest in Christ. He is anticipating that there is going to be a change in the outward forms of of worship. And this is one of the points where the Jews were, they took great offense at the early Christians because they were accusing them of forsaking the customs that were delivered to them by Moses. But Moses knew and understood that those customs that were put into place at at Sinai, that they were temporary, that they were there for a moment, for a season of time, until the coming of the Christ. Yet their opponents are accusing them, ridiculing them, scoffing them, persecuting them, because they're saying that you're trying to overthrow the law of Moses. But this is not an accurate accusation. Acts chapter 6, verse 14. Acts chapter 6, verse 14. says, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. This is one of the accusations against Stephen. He's saying that Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place, will destroy this temple. Which, did Jesus himself not predict that in Matthew 24? This is what we've been studying on Wednesday night. right? And was the temple necessary after the coming of Christ? No, it was not necessary after the coming of Christ. And also the customs. Some of the customs handed down by Moses are not in place after the coming of Christ. Such as the sacrifices, such as the various feast days, such as the priesthood, the high priest, right? Those things, those customs, they are no longer in force. But this is not because we are rejecting the Bible. It's not because we hate the Old Testament and we want to get rid of the Old Testament. It is rightly interpreting the Old Testament and understanding the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Also, Acts 21, verse 21. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, it says, They have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their customs. Again, one of the charges against the early Christians is that they are seeking to undermine Moses, do away with the law of Moses, change the customs that have been delivered to them. And again, yes, there is a sense in which this is true, but it's not unbiblical and it's not a rejection of Moses, an undermining of Moses to do these things. This concept of altering the customs delivered by Moses should not be surprising, should not be strange, new, and novel to anyone who is carefully reading even the Old Testament scriptures because it was anticipated in the Old Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 Hebrews chapter 8, this concept or this topic of dealing with these rituals and customs of the Old Covenant, he will deal with this thoroughly in the middle chapters of the book of Hebrews. Right? This is, in large part, one of the main arguments he's making throughout the book. How do we deal with these various customs? Well, he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, it says, When he said a new covenant... 
He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Right? The Bible speaks in terms of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the Old Testament speaks of the New Covenant. So if the Old Testament, those living under the New Covenant, if they are writing about predicting the New Covenant, well, isn't the fact that there is a New Covenant, doesn't that teach and show that the Old Covenant itself is not final? That the Old Covenant itself is not able, through the outward rituals, to deliver the people from their sins. If there is the old, and if there is the new coming, the new, the fact that there is a new one, shows that there is something greater coming in the future. That's the same as Psalm 95. The reason that David is speaking of a future rest for the people of God is because the rest of creation and the rest of Canaan cannot save people from their sins. There is something greater that needs to happen. And what God had done up to this point, all of these things are foreshadowing. They're pointing people toward Christ. But what Christ will do has not been done in history yet. He has not been incarnated. He has not lived his perfect life. He has not died on the cross. He has not been raised from the dead for our justification. But he is going to do that in the future, from the perspective of Psalm 95. And that's why David is telling them there is a future rest. There is another rest, a spiritual rest, and that is the rest that we must strive to enter into. He cannot be talking about the rest of creation because God entered into that rest from the foundation of the world. Well, then what about the rest of Canaan? Is the prophet David in Psalm 95, is he talking about the rest of Canaan? This is verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 4, 5, and 6 says, And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Right In the passage of Psalm 95, we remember that the prophet David is using the wilderness generation as an example of unbelief, as an example of a people who had the good news preached to them. They had before them a promise of entering into God's rest in the land of Canaan, but they failed to enter into that rest because of unbelief. There was a rest proposed unto the men from the foundation of the world. This is the rest of creation in verses 3 to 4. Then there was another rest many years later, that was put before the people during the time of Moses and then later Joshua, the rest of the land of Canaan that was proposed to those who were led out of Egypt by Moses. And in this rest, they failed to enter in because of their unbelief. Is this the rest that the prophet David is proposing to his congregation? Are the children of Israel still living out in the wilderness wanderings? Are they still out in the wilderness sitting there on the edge of the land of Canaan, waking, waiting to take possession of that land, waiting to enter into God's rest. They've been out there for 500 years, and now David is urging his own generation to have faith, to take courage, to trust in God, to go in and enter the land of Canaan, defeat the Canaanites, dispossess the people, and take possession of the land. Well, this cannot be the case. For when the prophet David wrote Psalm 95 the people of Israel had already entered into the land of Canaan. 
They had already been living there for over 500 years when David wrote Psalm 95. He says, those who formerly had good news preached failed to enter because of disobedience. Yes, it is true that the wilderness generation did not enter into that rest. The promise of rest was given to them. They failed to enter because of unbelief. But who did enter into that rest? Well, the next generation, their children and their grandchildren. And how much time passed between that generation and the next? 40 years. There was a 40-year period of time when they wandered in the wilderness, when that generation that was brought out by Moses died and perished in the wilderness. And then the next generation, they are the ones who entered into that rest. And this rest they entered into 500 years before the prophet David. So he cannot be referring to this rest because they've already entered in. So then what is the rest that the prophet David proposes to his own generation? It is not the rest of creation. It is not the rest of Canaan. It is the rest found in Christ. The coming Christ will bring rest to the people of God. Now, here, concerning the rest of Canaan that was proclaimed to the wilderness generation, the apostle reminds us that their failure to enter into this rest was on account of their disobedience. And this is a warning for us, because regardless of what we're talking about, whether it is the rest of creation whether it is the rest associated with the land of Canaan, or whether it is the ultimate rest found in Christ. In all situations, God requires faith and obedience in man. No one has ever entered into God's rest without faith and obedience. Now, we might ask here, did they fail to enter because of disobedience, or did they fail to enter because of unbelief? Because here, in verses 5 and 6, he says... They did not enter because of disobedience. But in other passages, here even in chapter 3 and 4, he says it is because of unbelief. So which one is it? Is it unbelief or is it disobedience? And the answer is, it's both. Right? It is both because unbelief and disobedience are always connected. They are inseparable. They cannot be separated. For unbelief in God's promises always manifests itself in disobedience to God's command. Unbelief is the root, and disobedience is the fruit. And this is why the apostle uses these things interchangeably throughout this passage. Remember chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There, the emphasis is on an unbelieving heart. Then verse 18 To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Their unbelieving heart resulted in disobedience. Then in verse 19, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Right? Unbelief is the source, and it results in disobedience. Then chapter 4, verse 2. He says, The word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. There, the emphasis, the focus is on faith. And then in verse 6, they had the good news preached and they failed to enter because of disobedience. 
And here it reminds us of the exhortation of this passage. That we better take care that there not be found in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And while the promise of entering God's rest remains, we must fear lest any of us should come short of it. Then verse 7, Hebrews 4, 7. He says there, He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Here, after God established the rest of creation from the foundation of the world, and after God established the rest of Canaan entered into by the children of Israel under the leadership of Joshua, here in Psalm 95, he fixes a certain day, another day. And this day is still future, to the prophet David when he's writing Psalm 95. This day then cannot refer to those former days that have already been accomplished. But this then is the primary rest of the people of God. The spiritual rest that the other two rests symbolized and anticipated. And it is the rest that we enter into through faith in Christ. And that rest will be accomplished during the day of Christ through his death, and through his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And again, here we're talking about the accomplishment of this rest. right? This rest is brought to its accomplishment through the person and work of Christ. The completion of this work of God will be 900 years after the time of David. 900 years after the writing of Psalm 95, This is when God will undertake this work, and this is when God will bring it to its completion. 900 years after David, in the incarnation, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, this does not mean that David and his congregation, or Joshua and his congregation, or Moses and his, or even Adam and those from the beginning of the world, it does not mean that they cannot enter into this rest. Otherwise, why is David telling them to enter into it? He's telling them to enter in before it has been accomplished. Because the benefits, the blessings, the privileges of the salvation found in Christ, those things were experienced by believers even from the foundation of the world though it had not yet been accomplished in terms of his incarnation, his death, his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, yet God admitted people, even before the coming of Christ, into this rest on faith in the promise of this rest, on faith in the promise of the coming of Christ and the promise of his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. They entered in in that way. The blessings, the benefits, they are given to David. They are before David. They are before his generation. And they are before everyone who hears the gospel. Whether they live before Christ or whether they live after the time of Christ. David is living before. So he's telling his generation about this coming day. That there is fixed a certain day of rest that is coming where God will accomplish this great work of salvation. He will do what is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. And he calls it a certain day. He says today. And this is 
Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And according to Acts 13, 33, this day is the day of resurrection. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it also is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The day of resurrection is the day when God manifests in the world that Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son, His beloved Son, and that God has accepted His sacrifice for our sins. And this is the rest that we must enter into. This is the rest the prophet David is proclaiming to the people in Psalm 95. It cannot be the rest of creation because that was accomplished 3,000 years before. It cannot be the rest of Canaan, that was accomplished 500 years before. It is a future rest that will be accomplished in the days of the Christ. A spiritual rest, an eternal rest in Jesus Christ that results in the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. And this is the rest that men must enter into. If we would be eternally blessed, if we would have the spiritual blessings In Christ, we must enter this rest. Many people are born into this world, right? They, in a sense, enjoy the privileges of God's work of creation, right? A man can physically and outwardly experience and enjoy many of the physical blessings of God associated with the created world. Also, from the time of Joshua onward, there were many men, who were born in Israel after that time, who may have spent their entire life in the land of Canaan, who may have enjoyed many physical blessings of God, a land flowing with milk and honey. They may have enjoyed and eaten on the bounty of the land and may have even experienced a life free from invasion, free from strife, where they lived a peaceful, tranquil life. Yet those temporal physical blessings mean absolutely nothing if a man dies in his sins and is cast into the lake of fire. For man is more than simply the body. We are more than a physical being. We are both physical and spiritual. There is this life and there is the life to come. And the rest that we need is not a rest only associated with this present world, but it is a rest associated with the world to come an eternal and a spiritual rest with Christ in heaven for all eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3, 11 says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. There is more than just this present temporal physical life. There is the spiritual, the eternal, the life to come. And what good does it do a man to pass his days away in tranquility and calm? To be born into this world, or to live in the land of Canaan, to never be harassed by a foreign invader, to have a nice, happy, peaceful, quiet existence all of his day, If that man has God as his enemy, and if that man is under the wrath of God because of the guilt of his sin, 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? That is what David is telling and teaching the people in his own day. Because during the days of David, the people were in the land of Canaan. And during the days of David, they had success and victory over many of their enemies. And they had much peace and tranquility and calm during his days and during the days of Solomon as well. And he's telling them, do not merely think, do not think, do not entertain this idea that as long as you live in the land of Canaan, that guarantees you God's favor and God's approval. It is necessary to enter into a greater rest. The rest that Canaan symbolized. The rest for poor sinners. The rest for guilty souls that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Only in His person as the mediator between God and man. And only in His work who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not talking about living in the land of Israel because they're in the land of Israel at this time. He's talking about rest for the souls of men. And what is it that causes the souls of men to not be in rest? Is it not the knowledge of our sin, the guilt of our sin? But if we come to Christ, our sins can be taken away. And then we have rest for our souls. This is the rest David taught in Psalm 95. And what does this rest call men to do? For his generation and for ours as well. The promise of entering his rest is before us, so what does it require of us? Well, notice what he says at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. Faith in the promise of God and obedience to His commands. When the gospel is proclaimed to us, this is our solemn duty. Do not have a hard heart. Do not have an evil, unbelieving heart. But instead, have a soft, tender, sensitive heart to the preaching of the Word of God that unites the heart to faith in the Word of God. The wilderness generation heard the voice. They had the promise proclaimed to them. God clearly told them what was required of them, but they hardened their hearts against the word of the Lord. They were unbelieving. They were disobedient. And so they did not enter into that rest, but their bodies fell in the wilderness as a testimony of God's anger, his wrath, his displeasure with those people. Well, do we want to be like them? We don't want to repeat the same disobedience as they did. So when we hear God's voice proclaimed in God's word, then do not harden your heart. Do not disbelieve, but rather believe. This is what we are called to do. And this is the perpetual call for the children of God. Whether it be the moment of our salvation, when a man first hears the word of the Lord with saving faith, or whether we've been a Christian for 50 years, the response is always one and the same. Do not harden your hearts. Do not be unbelieving, but rather be believing. John chapter 20. John 20, 24 to 31. 
John 20, 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. There Thomas, though he had this testimony by a good witness, the other apostles, they were all testifying to him. Though Jesus had taught him about his death and resurrection, though the Old Testament scriptures prophesied these things, yet Thomas refused to believe it unless he saw it with his own eyes. He was unbelieving, right? He had temporary a hard heart toward the promises of God. And Jesus tells him, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And this is how we have to be for the entirety of our Christian life. Do not have a hard heart against the word of the Lord. Do not be unbelieving, but rather we have to always be believing the word of the Lord. For the righteous shall live by his faith. We must live the life of faith. And the Christian life is a life of perpetual faith. So every time the word of God is brought before us, brought to bear upon us, the good news is being preached to us. The promise of entering into rest is set before us. So we must believe. And we who have believed, we enter into that rest. And we have confidence that not only do we enter into that rest now through the forgiveness of sins, but also in the life to come, we will enter into the consummation of that rest, the completion, the fulfillment of that rest in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And until we enter into that rest, we must strive on, right? We must strive and we must press on and we must endure until we enter into that full, final resting place of God. And we do this by living the life of faith. So let us then live in that way and be faithful to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, thanking you, Lord, that you have accomplished, Lord, everything that is necessary for our salvation. Lord, this great work of redeeming sinners, Lord, you have set about to, to do it. Lord, you have done it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we see from your word that everything necessary to bring about our eternal salvation, Lord, it has been accomplished through the person and work of Christ. Lord, we thank you that Lord, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because, Lord, there is no amount of striving, no amount of working, Lord, no amount of righteousness that we could produce through our own efforts, Lord, that would ever be satisfying to you. Lord, that would ever gain us your approval, Lord, and grant us your favor. Lord, it is only through Jesus Christ that we can enter into this rest.
and that we can cease from our labor. Lord, only in Him. And Father, I pray today that we would strive to enter in. Lord, that we would be faithful to You. Lord, that we would see that those who have unbelieving hearts, Lord, those who are hard-hearted, who refuse to believe in Christ, Lord, they will never enter into Your rest. Lord, You have sworn it in Your wrath that they will not enter. But Lord, we pray as well that You would give us hope and confidence that just as You have sworn against those who are unbelieving, Lord, You have sworn for those who are believing, for their blessing, Lord, for their benefit. And that, Lord, You will always keep Your Word so that if we have put our hope in Christ, Lord, we have a great confidence, Lord, that we will be saved from our sins, and that we will enter into your heavenly kingdom. Lord, until that day in which we enter into our final resting place, Lord, we pray that you would give to us endurance, Lord, that you would give to us the strength and the grace that we need to persevere to the very end. Lord, knowing that those who manifest an evil, unbelieving heart, Lord, those who fall away from the living God, that they will never enter in. And Father, we don't want any of us to fall by the same sort of disobedience, Lord, to come short of the promise. But rather, Lord, we want all of those who are here, Lord, to attain it, and Lord, to enter in and to enjoy that blessed state in the life to come. So, Lord, help us. Lord, give us what we need. Lord, may you use your word and your people, Lord, to build us up in our faith and encourage us to press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this rest. Lord, that we have such confidence that our sins have been forgiven, that we can even come and approach you, Lord, crying out to you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together.